Welcome to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. Whether you realize it or not, you are resilient. It's your birthright. As you take in your next breath, know this truth. It's not only about your capacity to overcome difficult situations, but it's about your courage to do the necessary work to heal, learn, grow, and move forward. What you gain is invaluable wisdom. And it's through these hard stumbles in life that we often discover a new purpose that aligns with our spirit. My name is Fabio De Silva Fernandez, Reiki master, mindfulness coach, and mystical explorer. Join me weekly as the Stumbling Spirit podcast highlights the lives of extraordinary people like you, sharing transformative stories and beneficial practices of resilience to guide you on your wellness journey. Christian Lloyd is a seasoned actor, writer, and photographer who's been in show business for more than 25 years, taking on roles on popular shows such as The Handmaid's Tale and American Gods, and working alongside the likes of Joseph Fiennes and Ian McShane. Christian's been nominated and awarded for his screenwriting with the 2016 dramedy film Moments of Clarity. Today we explore When Life Imitates Art, the journey of an artist, and how personal loss can shake and reshape the human spirit. It's my pleasure to welcome Christian Lloyd to the show. Hi, Christian. Curious about the word seasoned. Is that because of the salt and pepper in my hair? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The theme of The Handmaid's Tale is about suppression and control. In this case of women's bodies and reproductive rights, you play a character, a man who wants to further assert this dominance. And in American Gods, you play Argus, a deity with many literal eyes who is called the god of surveillance. So when you reflect on these characters and what's happened in society over the past few years and what continues to happen in relation to populism, the repealing of rights, and the control and dilution of truth, what is your sense of the world at the moment? Well, I would say at the moment, we live in a world where people have an avenue to express their thoughts in a way that can be construed as hate in a lot of ways towards groups that they fear. People fear power, one self of agency. The more power you give the individual, the more fear it gives weak individuals. And I think a lot of times we see it in governments that it's this fear of being invisible and feeling overlooked by the rise of power of others and people who are being othered. Definitely, you know, I feel like there's a shift in today's world that's reflecting that. And, the, you know, it's, it's the number of people who, you know, want to suppress LGBT rights in the States. You find out later that they're the ones who are caught in hotel rooms with male prostitutes. I think it just sort of plays in that the more power you give the suppressed, the more the sort of hard right get offended and feel threatened by that and out come these seemingly archaic views of the world are are given a light today, which is terrifying. What is that when we have someone who's a senator who is perhaps closeted, questioning, exploring, whatever, and they are passing laws that are repressing people that they represent? Why do you think that happens? Let's get too political here, but I feel like the far right has 
clear definitions of what an individual should be. And the far left is concerned with celebrating an identity that hasn't been shaped by society or hasn't been celebrated by society. So when you have these opposing forces on either side, I, I think when you are challenging the notion of what a family is and you're, no, you know, you're attacking the notion of what a fully autonomous individual is, then it's going to create this imbalance and this distrust of society. How can someone so clearly know who they are when what they are is so far removed from what I am? What does that person know about themselves? So 100%, you know, in a, in a clearly defined way, how can they know who they are when I've been brought up this way with these beliefs? There's no way they're the devil. You know, let's other them. Let's remove their rights because they have no right to break the mold and they have no right to shatter the image that I was brought up with, not me, sort of universal eye. How dare people celebrate an identity that doesn't reflect the constructs of society? And I think what that does is realize that there's a power in that. Let's get rid of that power. Let's soften that voice and let's stick with the world that makes sense to me. And I feel like that's happening a lot. And especially with the Trump world years, uh, there was a, a voice to to hatred um, and a platform where you could express hatred in a way that is shocking, given where we came in the early 2000s as a society in the Western world. And I feel like we're going back to the 50s in a lot of ways. So as an artist, when you play these roles that are really hitting close to home, how do you draw on that character especially an undesirable character? How do you actually do that? It all drops down to logic and figuring out the logic of someone else without judgment, which is super hard. And I have a friend who's very left-leaning, but feels the importance to read the right. And because the thing is, regardless of how horrific someone's politics are, there's going to be a moment where it makes sense to them. And I think being able to put yourself in a position of understanding the logic behind a motive, you can understand the emotion behind that logic. And that's the hard thing because it's so easy to judge these characters. But in doing so, you present a very one-dimensional retelling of this character story. But to really understand the humanity, I, I think the most important thing about you know these, these shows is not to represent an archetype, but to represent a human with an opinion that they believe to be true. And then it engages the humanity and in the audience empathy. I don't know about you, but there's some times where I side with the villain and I go, I totally understand where they're coming from, but X, Y, and Z betrayed them. And therefore that causes them to believe these beliefs. And, and you sort of, I wouldn't say have um, a lenience towards them, but definitely a, a more of a human understanding of why they're acting the way they are. You know, I mean, film, for example, is the most empathetic art form. That's how we relate to silences on film is because we can put ourselves in those shoes. We as a society, it's so comfortable to not put ourselves in the shoes of others because it's easier to label them as evil and it's label them as a snowflake than it is to really understand the motivations behind. That's a really mindful approach as an actor to be able to look at a character and find the humanity in someone that would otherwise be undesirable. Where do you apply that in your own life? Well, definitely as a writer, 
I feel like we all have an ingrained sense of what a story is. We've all been to dinner parties where someone rambles forever and you're like, just get to the point. So we all intrinsically have this sense of, of what makes a gripping story. And I think that's why the Academy Awards are such a universally celebrated event. But everyone has their favorite actor. Everyone has their favorite film, regardless of where they come from. And I think it's because it, it really does ignite something in us in a way of understanding each other. And I, I feel like for me as a writer, it's really easy because I, I get a sense and then I can jump in as the actor as I'm writing these characters and see a situation from many points of view. And that's also how I like to apply those tools to my life, to instead of making vast generalizations about people, to sort of come at it from different points of view to see if I can understand them. So I feel like those traits that I apply to acting, you know, I apply to my life as well. Everyone was a beautiful child at some point and certain circumstances led them a certain path. It's an easy trap to fall into to dismiss people based on their politics when really there's a human behind those thoughts and feelings. And, you know, there's usually an inciting incident, as there is in all our lives, that caused people to go down a certain road. Yeah, there's horrible people that I've canceled off Facebook. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. But I think that being able to see the human behind the agenda is is a very important tool. And what about the power of an artist? So when you are writing or when you're performing as an actor, there must be a sense of a great deal of responsibility when you're performing these roles or creating a role to really get a message across in a genuine way but also in a way that can connect to people that perhaps don't agree with that character or that life or that uh, way of moving through the world. When you reflect on that in your career, what has been the most rewarding in terms of roles that you've played things that you've written that you feel has actually made a profound impact on others? Well, there's two. I would say I, I, last year I did a horror movie where I played the leader of a right-wing Christian neo-Nazi militia group. And on paper, the guy's just a bit terrifying and a bit lost and certainly completely misunderstood, but ultimately... A villain who's been not equipped with the tools to be a true successful villain. And for me, I could play what was on the page, but what was more interesting was to find out why he's deciding to lead these men in 1990s Michigan to go against the threat. Uh, in our movie, the threat was a vampire, but really the threat was anything that didn't, anything that challenged the status quo, anything that wasn't white, anything that wasn't Christian uh, was the enemy in terms of, of the world of men that he had. But I, I sort of, you know, through working with my coach, I got to a point where I found what was making him tick. And it was a secret that I kept from pretty much everyone on set. And there was a moment where it all broke down. And I remember the director coming up to me and he goes, how did you turn this into King Lear? <laughs> this is, this is a, you know, a madman on the top of a hill just talking to his men. But suddenly it became Shakespeare. And I think it's because I just refused to present someone as a one-dimensional archetype. 
So that was a moment where it universally across the board, everyone was impacted by the depth that I went with that character. And I mean, let's be honest, it's a horror movie. No one's going to step back and go, oh my God, that moment. But just the fact for me that I can be in something of that genre and still really get into some muddy psychological territory was very satisfying. And then on the flip side of that, another one, I was in a show called The Heart of Robin Hood that was through Mervish and a played at the Royal Alex Theater. I was just the big, open, sweet, vulnerable, beating heart of the show to be in front of 1,500 people a night and just be open and not be clouded by any sort of characteristic that wasn't me. But to just essentially be me embracing an audience every night was, first of all, a huge challenge to just because I was the narrator in it. But it was interesting. One of my acting coaches came up and she said, you just came on stage and you just were love. You just were a big open love vessel for the audience and everyone fell in love with you every night. So for me, I usually play the guy, bad guy. So it was interesting to know that I can be that open hearted and be just that much of an open vessel. But I will say being that vulnerable, and I'm not saying that I was weeping on stage every night, but just having that openness, it was a, a different type of challenge that I hadn't experienced before. Because I, I think when we play characters that are close to us, it's a lot harder than you would think. Uh, it's, it's really easy to play someone who's 180 degrees away from us. And that's interesting, right? Because it sounds like you are finding the heart of every character that you play. Mm -hmm. And that actually speaks to really compassion, right? Because if you can be compassionate for the character that you're playing, then you can be compassionate to someone that you just don't know, or perhaps someone that is on the news or a neighbor or whatever. It's a really powerful tool to have as an artist to find the heart of a character. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's all we can do. Otherwise, we do create, you know, one dimensional characters. So it, it, you know, it's not something that I have necessarily revolutionized by any sense. But I will say it is it is harder. Uh, and it requires a different set of looking at things in order to to have that come close. I mean, I remember once I was in a film, it was actually my first film, and it was a big deal. It was for Showtime, and it was about the day uh, that John Hinckley Jr. attempted to assassinate Reagan, and I was playing John Hinckley Jr. You know, that's a pretty big role for someone who's fresh out of theater school in a big American production that actually never aired in Canada, sadly. But I remember the executive producer, we were chatting with each other in the lunch line, and he said, what was so interesting about your audition is you took one foot into the darkness, but only one foot. And the second the darkness became uncomfortable, you you sort of withdrew. So it was really fascinating to know that you were able to dip in, but that you could come out of it. And I, I sort of brought that through, you know, it, it also find, it helps you find dimension in character. But it was interesting that I'm not afraid to tap into darkness, but I think when you when you fully live in that world that that's what's the joy in playing characters when you're only accessing the darkness well yeah because i mean no one as you say is one-dimensional or two-dimensional as an actor how do you find those other dimensions when it's not on the page it's interesting some of the scripts we get are not well written the logic doesn't make a lot of sense my 
understanding of the character sometimes is greater than the person who wrote it. And sometimes these scripts are written so quickly, especially in episodic television, that I may find a layer that doesn't exist in the script. So there is a risk at doing that because you may start to tell another story that the character may not be needing to you know share at that stage of the story but sometimes for example i was in a television pilot unfortunately it didn't go as a series but i read this character i went oh this is the office jerk and apparently the screenwriter had written the office loser and everyone who came in and played it for some reason read the script and went oh that's the office loser so when i came in with a completely different set of, you know, whole other perspective. That is a danger because it looks like I have a personal agenda to change what's existing. But really, it was just my analysis. And I was brought in by the screenwriter when I booked the role. And she said, what booked you this role, what got you this, was the fact that you had such a different perspective. And actually, that perspective changes the arc of this whole story. And we realized we do need that person you love to hate in the office. And we didn't have that. So had that series been accepted by the network, my character would have originally been in one every five episodes, but then it was going to be in every episode. Sadly, it didn't go anywhere. But but just knowing that it, it wasn't me being contrary to the material. It was just, I saw this person a different way. And I feel like if there's something that I can hold on to that there's a reason why I'm I'm playing it the way I am and there actually is proof in the text, which there was, then that is sometimes an interesting thing that can happen. But there are times where we play a role and it is one dimensional and you realize this is just information that needs to get across from the audience. So if I actually go against that and create someone more dimensional, I'm going to look like a newbie who's fresh out of school who wants to show everyone my colors. When really the color that they need right now is just gray and then get out. So sometimes we just have to know our place in the story. Our approach to it is just to be as effective in telling that shade of the story as possible. Well, you're finding a way to connect to the character, but also interpret it in a genuine way. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. A lot of actors get to a certain level and they get to a certain level of credits and they go, I don't need to train anymore. Uh, whereas you, if you look at the Olympic athletes, they're always training. And so I take a masterclass every Monday and it's more just, especially in today's virtual world, is just to connect with another human being. And there is this saying that, you know, if you're lost in the scene, just check to see what color your uh, acting partner's eyes are. See the fabric of their jeans. Uh, is there a stain on their shirt? What part of you are you most attracted to? What part of them bothers you the most? And it's a way of bringing you present and realizing at the end of the day, the lines are just lines. It's, it's about behavior between you and the other person. And they may do something that goes completely against the text, but the fact that you're connecting with them is going to bring out things in you. So I think that's the difference between creating a script and performing one is it's really about being in a present moment with another human being and what we're saying to each other is irrelevant. It's just the behavior that's solicited by the other person. And that's what I find so exciting. So the more that I can engage in that work, you know, the happier and fuller my, my work will become. So how does someone who has a bachelor in kinesiology go <laughs> from that to George Brown acting school? 
Well, it's interesting. I went to boarding school in the 80s. So I think it was maybe after grade 10, that's when Dead Poets Society came out, not to age myself. I think I just did. Uh, and in it, you know, I, I was going through a lot of those struggles. I had a, you know, I still do have a very supportive family with with respect to what I'm pursuing in life. But for me, I had a drama teacher in high school who was very much like the Robin Williams character and saw us as individuals, not just kids who were in need of a fully formed frontal cortex. He, he saw us as soulful individuals in need of expressing themselves. So the sort of plays that I got to do in high school were things like The Crucible, Streetcar Named Desire, Equus, some, some hard hitting stuff. And there was a lot of analysis that went into it. And just a lot of discussions about the psychology of the characters. And I lived my best life as an artist in high school. And then I thought there's no way that one, the work that I get to do all the time will be as rich as the work that I'm getting to, you know, because we were all in school. We didn't have other lives. We didn't have children I had to look after. So we were all in the same sort of packaged boat of experience at that point. So I thought, one, it's not going to get better than this because life will get in the way. And two, I can't give everything up and, and be an actor, especially in Canada. You know, I mean, the best of us can name, sorry, not me, obviously I'm in the industry, but, you know, the best, most well-read, the most uh, well-rounded Canadian might be only able to name five Canadian actors at the top of their head. So we just live in a country that doesn't embrace what we have uh, the way we should. So I think for me, I, I just thought there's no way I can pursue this and be happy. Uh, and be fulfilled and be fed and clothed and have a roof over my head. So I opted to my second love, which was understanding the human body and how that works. And so I did this degree in kinesiology at Guelph. And it was actually a Bachelor of Science in Human Kinetics, which is basically the physics of human movement, which is hilarious that that was my, my road. And when everyone was applying, I think it was in second year, everyone started applying to graduate school and med school. Uh, I had the marks to get into med school and that's where I was heading and that's where I wanted to go. And then I had a breakdown after doing a play at the end of the second semester of first year. Someone said, you have no right to be here. You are a scientist. You should not be taking parts away from actors unless you want to do this and do this for a living. And that really hit hard. And then someone came up to me who uh, is still in the industry and said to me, you need to get out of science. You're actually going to improve the world by being an actor. And then I started applying to theater schools. And the funny thing is I actually didn't get into George Brown. Someone dropped out. And so when they offered me a spot, of course, my ego was like, hell no, I'm not, I'm not taking your spot. You said no to me. And I said yes. And I was one of the first actors in my class to get work upon graduation so don't say no when an offer that was originally a rejection comes back that was something i learned you're george brown and clearly you graduated and so what was your breakthrough role i don't know because i think a breakthrough role as the role where suddenly you have an assistant <laughs> so, i don't have an assistant um I mean, let's just say this, good things have come out of every role I've played, which is a very Canadian response. 
And what I mean by that is I was in this series and I met this person. And by meeting this person, I went to LA and in having lunch with them, met this person, which now affected this project. So I find that there have been two projects that I don't think is wise or smart to discuss that I hated. And they were shows that people love. So that's a weird thing when people come up to you and go, I loved you in this show. And you go, great. I hated every second of that. And of course, I have to be careful and, and not tell those stories to people that I don't know. But yes, I would say there were two instances where I felt like, oh, I don't think I can do this anymore. But for the majority of them, even though, you know, here's the thing. I've been told this is my breakout role on set. And then it wasn't. And then it was awful to sort of build myself back up after that. The the heartache and the number of things of chips that were used to help me through those moments of failure, you know, air quote failure, uh, were a lot because I listened to people saying that this was the role that would change everything. So let me ask you a different question then. So what was the role that you felt you shined in? Well, it's interesting. There's two. Robin Hood. And again, it was a very weird experience because I came in very late to the process. Uh, there was a six-month casting process between Toronto and New York, and I was brought in eight days on a self-tape uh, before we started rehearsals. So they had someone in mind, and they wanted an, another option. And that's been my whole career. I am the other option guy. And I think because I can play the lawyer, the doctor, the doting father the angry coworker, but also I can play extreme characters and then obviously have one foot in reality with them. But the problem is when you look at my demo reel, I don't play the same role twice, which for me at the end of my career, I can look back and go, look at the variety of roles. But it's like going to a bank that also has no monthly service fees. They have really good pizza and they've got ski slopes. And you're like, what? What is going on? Well, I'm not going to go to that bank. So for me, having a, a, a wide net that I can cast is not very helpful in the world of casting because people want a lot of times that they want a type and I don't fit into a type. So that, that's been hard. But it, yes, so Robin Hood, I played against type. I never played the fool. And I was basically the guy who is making, you know, fart jokes in front of the audience and being that character, which I'm never, I'm usually the heavy and the, you know, the brooder. And then there was another project called Mr. Viral, which is a feature film. It was shot, I think it was over 12 days, over weekends in a December. And my character went on such an insane journey and we shot it out of sequence. It was my first lead in a film. And I mapped out this character's journey and it makes no sense. For me, it was the barometer of this film will determine whether I have what it takes to play a lead in a film. Because if I don't chart this properly and know that when I come in this room, I'm coming with the bag I've seen before, even shot the scene before yet. So being able to map all that out was a daunting, daunting task. But also at the end of the day, it, it worked. Sadly, being a Canadian film, uh, not a lot of people saw it. Uh, we only played at one film festival and it didn't get a distributor. Maybe it did get a distributor. 
I don't know. But anyway, not a lot of people saw it. And for me, I, I, that's the one I'm, I'm super proud of. Speaking of casting a wide net, you are not only an actor, a writer, but you're also a photographer. Mm -hmm. And it's also a passion of yours. So do you want to speak to us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I think it's interesting because it's all about an artist has to have a perspective, a point of view, and an openness to change direction immediately, especially as an actor. And I feel like as a photographer, uh, I'm not a fan of posed shots. I lose interest. I think that there's editorial high fashion shots. You need those posed and those are gorgeous. But for me, I love the Vivian Meyer style of street photography. I think it's gorgeous. Let's not soften a character. Let's have them express their, their views as they have. So with that, uh, I actually, how I generate money through photography is through portraiture. And the one thing that people always say, you find an openness through the eyes. Because some photographers just push their clients through and nothing against that. Uh, I am also not doing photography every day. And I think if I did, I would certainly get into a, a rhythm of pumping people through. Uh, but for me, it's really having that person feel safe enough and brave enough. Even though they're not looking at me, they're looking at a piece of glass down a barrel. When I look in, they're looking right at me. So there is a moment where I want all the artifice and all the sort of layers of artifice that we put on ourselves. I want that stripped away and I really want to get to the person. And it's really vulnerable on my end when someone allows me to see who they are. For them, they're just feeling comfortable in my presence looking at a piece of glass. But what I can see is someone who is vulnerable. And that's what's going to get them work. You know, that's what's going to keep their agent happy from the photos is someone who's willing to to break down their barriers and, and, and be fully vulnerable in front of me, uh, which is interesting considering actors never look down the barrel of a camera. We're looking into the face of another human or sometimes a green screen or sometimes. So we have a way of being aware of where the camera is at all times and, and knowing the relationship to the camera, but never looking down it. And then you ask an actor to come in for headshots and ask them to go against everything they've been trained to look down the barrel and be vulnerable. I find that very exciting. And just capturing the world as it is not how we want it to be. <laughs> well, I mean, it's through the eyes that you're able to capture the heart of the person, of the subject that you're you're taking photos of, right? Or sometimes the dead heart. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, let me ask you, what keeps you motivated to continue on your journey as an artist? I think it's a degree of satisfaction. And I have not been blessed with being a lead on a series where every day I get to wake up and live. I was going to say live my passion. And I felt like I was reading out of a brochure. But <laughs> I'm never more happy than when I'm on set. And it's not the culture of being on set. It's just the fact that I feel like I'm allowing all the things that make me who I am as an artist come into play and I get to just play and live in a fiction uh, and live in that fiction truthfully. And I find it, it, regardless of the project, it's always, I'm up two hours before I need to be and I'm doing yoga and I'm listening to music and practicing mindfulness and doing all these things. 
And it's really hard when you're not working to commit to the same routine. So for me, it's the, I don't call it a dopamine high in that. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of dopamine and the rush of, of being on set. So there's that, but it's also, this is why I'm on this earth. What keeps me going is going after what keeps me alive. I recently signed with a new agent in the midst of the pandemic, which I didn't think would be a good time to do it. Also, I had this core belief that where I was, I, I had more to contribute than where I was being seen. And I needed an agent who had the the status and, and drive to to make sure their clients get there. And I think it's easy as Canadians, I, I look at Canada as you know a big long table. And the majority of us are given a bowl of soup. And I would say we're bred to believe that that soup doesn't need spice. That soup doesn't need a lot of beautiful color. The soup is there just to make us, you know, is just there to sustain us. And it doesn't need all those other things because life doesn't need all those things. Well, you know what? I want soup that has flavor, that has spice, that is the most unique looking bowl of soup. And I'm sorry, yes, there's other things in my life that'll sustain me on a biological level, but I want to have some damn exciting soup. So when I look back at my life, I don't say, uh, you know, I missed out. Now that I changed representation, and I think part of it, going through the transition of the pandemic, realizing what I need in my life to, to make me feel fulfilled, uh, really changed that. And I refuse to accept it's interesting. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about the world word acceptance. I hate that word because if I accepted where I was in life, I would be at a stage where I wouldn't be being seen at the level I'm being seen at today. I accept that I have very little control over where I can go. So I accept that I have a role in what I can do to in order to secure work, but there's so much out of my power. And I feel like for me, the only thing I told myself was I refuse to believe that what I thought was my ceiling is my ceiling. And I'm just going to keep reaching. And look, you know, there's never going to be a time where an actor is satisfied. I, I, I met um, Julianne Moore at a party and she said, I wonder if I'm ever going to work again. Like, of course you are. You're Julianne Moore. I didn't say that to her, but, but I basically said, I think you're going to be fine. But every actor has that moment, will I ever work again? And if you don't ever work again, can you find happiness? Sure. But are you going to be rife with disappointment? Of course you are. Because we're always striving to continue. And, and this is what's interesting. When a lot of people say actors are selfish, inherently self-centered beings, it's interesting. If they won $5 million, it's one of the only professions where they would still work. I don't know how many lawyers, if you gave them a purse of $10 million, if they would show up at work on Monday. Whereas an actor, regardless of how much money they have, it's a vocation, you know, a musician, same thing. They continue to create work because they need to. And so in those moments where there are those challenges and hurdles that you need to face, what is it that you tap into to continue? I don't know. I think it's just this core belief. At the end of the day, I believe that I should be playing the parts that I'm getting. And I think it's easy to say, I'm not right for this. 
I luckily have an acting coach who said, unfortunately, there's no role you can't play. It's just finding your way to that character and finding as much of you in them and bringing that to the page, and then you'll be successful. And so there are times where, because the other thing too, being a writer, I know that I've written this character, Pedro, as the Nicaraguan uh, bush pilot. And if the right person comes in, Pedro can become Peter. And Peter could have studied in Honduras, and that's why he's living in Ecuador. Things can change. Nothing's locked in. So if I look at a description of a character and go, there's no way I'm going to play that, my audition is basically going to be a big billboard of me going, I'm not right for this. I'm not right for this. And I would say 60% of my career has been being the wrong person or being the complete opposite of what they were looking for. So I think for me is just what keeps me going is this belief that I should be here. It's really easy as an actor to, to doubt that. You recently had a major loss with the mm -hmm. passing of your brother, Adrian, who had dealt with pancreatic cancer over seven and a half years. Could you tell us a little bit about Adrian? Sure. I mean, he was my older brother and just probably one of my biggest supports. Very involved creatively. He had amazing ideas, came to everything I saw. Recently, when we were closing up his place, there was a box with programs of every show I'd been in since high school. You know, just unconditional, supportive, amazing older brother. We grew up in England. And so when we went to holidays in the 80s, we would come back with albums from Bananarama, from uh, Duran Duran, and he would invite friends over from high school and listen to this music. Oh, this is terrible. There's so much synthesizer, you know. And then, of course, it became... So he always had his finger on the pulse of, you know, artistic things that I think really helped shape me to be who I am today. And so having him not be here is, you know, has been a huge challenge to, you know, I mean, I had an audition uh, and I was really proud of it. And I, when I have these massive auditions, I used to send them to him. And so I was literally about to send it to him and then realized, you know, that it would be bounced back. So that, that was, that was a hard moment. I, I'm sort of pausing before I ask this next question, because it might seem rather obvious, but I'm curious as to the impact it had on you, the loss of your brother. I don't think I've ever felt more, more present. We were there as a family when he died in his hospice. And it's amazing that, that something could have been the most traumatic moment of my life that I remember every detail. And so my, my understanding, I know with childbirth, uh, there's a hormone that's released that make women forget the pain of childbirth. And so for some reason, I thought the most traumatic moments of one's life you know, you get blurred memory of it. And I, I find that fascinating that I've never felt more present. I mean, obviously the heartbreak and the horror of, you know, that moment, but also just the beauty of us being there as a family and, and knowing that there were no regrets, there were no words that were meant to be said that weren't. And I think because we were given prep time of seven and a half years, that helped as much as it can. But I think families first and just the fact that we were all there, because I know that certain spasms can occur and certain liquids can appear in the final moments. And it can actually be more traumatic than if you're not there. But I think for us as a family, it was really important that we were all there. And it, I literally drove in from Toronto and he died about an hour and five minutes after I arrived. 
I just look at that moment and I've just never felt being so present so powerfully. And he wasn't only your brother, but he was an artist in his own right. He was a singer. He was a painter. Could you tell us a little bit more about who he was as a creative spirit? Well, he, he also had an incredibly high IQ. And I think the danger of being told as a child that you're a genius is you feel like things should come to you. Things should be presented to you. And unfortunately, we don't live in that world. And so I think, you know, there was struggle in figuring out what his path was. And I know that when in the 80s, he would be singing along to Enya, and then I would come into the living room and I'd say, oh, that sounds nice. And he'd be like, piss off, because he he didn't feel like being, you know, observed and analyzed and, you know, little brothers can be cruel. And so for him, it was just not thinking that he had what it took. And it wasn't until further into his diagnosis that he really sort of took the singing as salvation and and just a way of, of easing the trauma of chemo. Uh, and he actually went to England and auditioned for X Factor. And he made it through the first round and then didn't get to the live round. But uh, yeah, so I feel like for him, you know, in his final stages of life, it really came into his own. The art was just something he dabbled with, but he was so good and he knew he was good. But I think, you know, there's this thing that uh, when someone says, do you think you're a good actor? I mean, I know what my answer is inside, but to say it just sounds arrogant. And I think for him, he always knew that he had this talent for drawing and painting, but it was just more of a passion, nothing that he felt the need to monetize. But yeah, definitely the singing was, was a way of blocking out the chemo experience, even though he actually enjoyed chemo he felt like he was doing something. He was being proactive against the cancer. He didn't lose his hair, which I think would have been a completely different narrative, but it gave him energy knowing that he was doing something to combat the disease. So with that energy, he would sing. And it was often on chemo days that he would do his, his quote unquote best singing. So Adrian passed away in 2022, just shy of his 54th birthday. Obviously, you would have been dealing with the grief and the loss of that and going through your own healing process. But I'm wondering how it has reshaped the way you embody character. Well, it's interesting. I have been fortunate enough to be in a film that premiered at Cannes. And so when I used to walk into an audition room, I used to see the people I was up against and I used to see the decision makers in the room and I battle with uh, issues of confidence every day, like most humans. And I find that when the stakes are high, I can get taken in by that. And so for me, using, I walked the red carpet at Cannes was my way of saying, I've had a life experience that required confidence. So I use that, to, I used to use that to bring me through difficult moments. But now when I look at a part, if I'm on set, I used to have this thing that I want the Americans to think I'm great. I want the lead to come up to me and say, here's my phone number. Let's be friends. You know, and I had this very juvenile respect for what I was doing in terms of the Americans are there doing and we're just here to support them. And, you know, about a month before Adrian died, I was on a big American set acting opposite an Oscar nominee. And I didn't care. I didn't care about the trappings of what I was doing. I didn't care if no one on the set liked me. I didn't care if this was going to lead to the next thing. 
And so for me, because I just cared about the work, I just cared about being honest and I cared about just delivering something I could be proud of. And all the other things just weren't important because my brother was dying. I think that was just a really interesting thing of placing what we do and the importance of what we do in a new place. Yeah, I, I also look at me going in and, and going, oh, this is nerve wracking. And I go, no, what's nerve wracking is going shopping and getting a diagnosis of stage four pancreatic cancer. That's earth shattering. What I'm doing is, is just different. And so I look at his journey now and, and that's what I look at as being brave. And that's what I look at at staying present and not, you know, having nihilistic thoughts of the future and just trying to enjoy life and, and you know, things having different importance. That has now changed, I think, the way that I work. And unfortunately, I, you know, I look at Nicole Kidman. When she and Tom Cruise split, she got some really interesting film work uh, and could really throw herself in. And I feel like, unfortunately, the universe hasn't yet given me a role where I can just take what I'm living through and just really lose myself in some really interesting character. I haven't been able to sort of channel my grief into a role that I've been playing at this stage. I'm not saying that you use your characters as therapy, but definitely being an actor, it's like being in a smash room where, you know, where you can break plates and, you know, I'm just not afraid of what will bubble up in me for work, you know, and I'm, I'm not doing anything to be liked. And I'm just open to what bubbles up because, you know, living with grief, that's the everyday reality. I'll be on the subway and something will remind me of him. And yeah, it's just a new reality. And so I'm just not afraid of how that looks externally because I don't care. What is resilience? Well, I think understanding and believing that you should be somewhere. And even if that place is miles away, just creating the conditions to get there. And even if that's unrealistic to an external eye, internally, it's this belief that I deserve to be where I want to be and where I feel I should be. I think a lot of people could say that's delusional thinking. And I think it's the weighing the belief that I am who I am and I deserve more in life and understanding that I may never leave where I am, but psychologically and internally and artistically, there is a drive to continue to a new place of satisfaction. Being resilient is drowning the voices that say, be realistic. What is your practice of resilience? It's not ongoing, that's for sure. There are times uh, I recently got a, a massive role that would have changed the course of my career. And then due to a budget issue, that storyline was removed. And so it's no longer on my resume. Uh, I wasn't able to shoot the experience. That was hard. And I would say that my resilience was kicked in the delicate place over that. I would say 24 hours later, I went, okay, you've grieved that loss. What's next? And I think for me, that's my practice is what's next. Because there always will be a what's next or at least there has to be that feeling that there is. Otherwise, what's the point of continuing? And I don't mean what's the point of continuing life. I mean, my artistic life. What's the point of me giving up so much in my life uh, and sacrificing so much if it's to be where they think I should be? 
I need to be where I think I should be. And is the question, what's next, something that you think about or is it something that you write? Every living moment, I think, what's next? I'm personally not one with sticky notes on the mirror. You know, my bathroom is, you know, got some shaving cream on the mirror, but it doesn't say you are enough or anything like that. I mean, not to say that, you know, anyone who needs to physically see a mantra um, by all means, but for me, it's just this internal record that I listen to that says, you know, keep going. You're not there yet. And what do you feel are the benefits of asking yourself what's next? I don't know if there are any, <laughs> um, to be honest. I have been lucky to see a few countries in this world, uh, in Asia, you know, I've been to South Africa, I've been to all through South America. And what that's done is made me want to see more of the world, which I never will. I mean, I will see more of the world, but I'll never see to the amount that I will ever feel satisfied. And I, there are days where I go, I wish I was a guy in Sarnia drinking Michelob on my front porch, watching the world go by and be completely happy with that that sounds like an amazing life. Whereas for me, I have this drive to experience everything and I'm never going to get there. There are times where I wish I could simplify and expect less, but that's just not me. And yet you experience presence with the passing of your brother and you experience presence in the characters that you embody. You experience presence in seeing the humanity in the characters that you play, it's interesting that there's that paradox. Mm -hmm. I, I have moments in my life where I am fully present and not thinking about, you know, where I need to go. And I think that's the balance is enjoying the moment you're in. I mean, that's why I don't own where I live uh, is because I could land a role that takes me to Lithuania for six years. If you're a homeowner, that's suddenly a massive challenge. There are things in my, you know, but I also in my present conditions, you know, I spent too much money on armchairs because those armchairs make me happy for now. So for me, I'm very good at balancing, you know, the need to do more and the satisfaction of where I am. And I think that's very important. It's a hard thing to, to sit in both. How can people contact you if they want to reach you? Oh my gosh. Uh, there are stalkers in the world. <laughs> um, I would say Instagram, uh, it's underscore Christian Lloyd and also Twitter. And then for photography, it's getting captured, which is uh, Instagram and Twitter. And it's just at getting captured. Christian, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate you sharing your story. I'm going to make you a really nice pot of soup. And it better have cachaça. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good sounds good okay. thank you so much right. thank you Bye. thank you for listening to the stumbling spirit contemplations on the path of resilience this is fabio da silva fernandez join me again next week for another episode of transformative stories and beneficial practices to guide you on your wellness journey if you wish you can follow and dm me on instagram at the stumbling spirit until next time take a deep breath and another step forward on your path of resilience